Yo, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Long Game Podcast. We got another Kitchen Side episode for you all after taking a short hiatus from producing more episodes. And we have to zoom out and think about what the future of the podcast would look like and what we need to do to iterate for the next chapter of the podcast based on a ton of feedback that we were getting from you all. So thanks so much for that. And please continue reaching out if you have any feedback for the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a couple of things. First, over the last couple of years or so, we've started seeing more and more LinkedIn experts show up talking about marketing and SEO and all the different demand gen channels there are. And one thing we've realized over the course of this year is that a lot of them are full of shit. We found that some folks actually hired those, quote, LinkedIn experts or LinkedIn influencers and found that a lot of these folks are really good at writing pithy LinkedIn posts that get a lot of engagement, but not the best people to actually implement the things they're talking about. And we go into this idea of the long form life of exiting the matrix of LinkedIn and all these things and spending more time thinking and then taking those long form thoughts and turning them into longer form articles, not just these bite-sized pieces for engagements. And what came out of that conversation was this talk about the continued or increased use of these AI tools to produce content. And there's this idea of the AI dark force, where in a world where a lot of content is being produced by AI online, how do you signal that you're a human on the internet? And how do you build trust if people are skeptical about AI? There was a recent news article about Sports Illustrated getting caught using AI and fake writer profiles to write content. And a lot of people were really pissed off about this. And they ended up unpublishing a lot of the content. And it, it seems like with good content, people want to know the human who wrote it. And so we go into detail talking about what the implications of this are. Now, the final thing we end with is we aren't a big fan of marketing predictions, just predictions in general, because the people making predictions don't have any skin in the game. They might be wrong. They might be right whatever the case, they get this engagement. And if they're wrong, there is no sort of accountability. And it's harmful because if they're wrong, but they're speaking with a lot of confidence and authority, people are taking that information and those recommendations and actually acting upon them. But if those things don't work out, these people aren't, aren't accountable. However, there are occasions where we read some marketing predictions or we see some online and we think, you know, this person might be onto something. And whether we agree or disagree, there are some folks who are less about hyping up future trends and more about having more sober predictions on the industry. And we believe that these are the types of folks to be paying a lot more attention to because it's not just hyping up something that maybe they even have a horse in the race on, but giving a more sober perspective on what the future might hold based on what we're currently seeing. And we discussed a couple of these predictions and hopefully these discussions can help you figure out which of these sorts of predictions that you continue to see as we go into the new year are worth paying attention to and perhaps even acting on or maybe just ignoring. So hope you enjoyed this first episode coming back from our hiatus and we have a lot more coming for you. Thanks.
Did you, did you all see that? Uh, remember, like the I think it was maybe the last kitchen side we did. We talked about the uh, SEO heist AI thing. Yeah. Did you see that? That's gone fucking crazy viral now. I saw Eric Stu repost it, um, and he was like, "I don't see why people are hating on this guy. It's like a fine strategy." And I'm like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> like, no, I there's guess, a big divide there. <laughs> yeah, there's a huge divide. And I think when we last talked about it, I was like, "I can see." I can admire the effort that went into this and like, that's pretty cool. But I'm also like morally, mm. what the fuck? <laughs> it's just crazy that we had, we had seen it like when it was a little bit controversial on LinkedIn and literally like Emmett Shear, who was the two minute CEO of OpenAI, AI, um, he posted about it and I see a bunch of like non SEO people posting about it and they're like, holy shit, this is crazy. And then SEOs are debunking it. They're like, well, they were working on it for 18 months and it's like fairly typical approach. Like they're just using maybe AI to speed it up. It's like nothing crazy here. Yeah. And then others are like, this is crazy spam. Mm. I, I'm just, I'm seeing it all over the place. And it's, it's just funny because we had, we had talked about it. <laughs> I think it's the brazen language that uh, makes people, uh, it's yeah. like inflammatory. It's calling it a heist and stealing and all of that stuff. It's like, yeah, it triggers some defense mm-hmm. mechanisms for people of like, oh, AI is going to, AI is going to take my job or AI is doing crappy work. One of those things. But well, at the very least, it does show the cracks in the moat that maybe like traditional SEO strategies have had, especially if you didn't have any sort of defining factors or differentiation in the content you created. So because now like it's so much faster to like replicate what would previously have been oh, yeah. the manual process of trying to re and reverse engineer the SERPs. So mm-hmm. I guess it is sort of a wake up call to people who have rested on their laurels in that way. Yeah. I mean, it's I still kind of stand by the whole idea of copying your competitors assumes that they're doing the right thing to begin mm-hmm. with. And I don't want to assume that anymore. And so, I mean, I'm curious. I didn't look into the work the guy produced, but I'm curious like what the business model is that he did the strategy for and then which competitors he copied and whether he's contributing to like well, business. John Henry broke that down actually. Uh, it's, oh. It was pretty, I don't remember the specific company, but um, they're like, they sell enterprise uh, software, I believe. And they ripped off from exceljet.net and that's like basically Excel formulas and like very kind of cursory um, how to do like um, VLOOKUPs and shit like that. And it's probably not the type of content that's going to drive business results. But it's still impressive that you get like 500,000 sessions a month from organic. Yeah. Like regardless, mm. you know. That's hard. I mean, mm-hmm. it was hard. <laughs> yeah. My, my big takeaway of this is uh, marketers don't know how to shut the fuck up when something's working. It's like, why couldn't you just like, if it was working that well, why couldn't you just like continue applying that tactic and just not talk about it, you know? Because now it's like, it's it's so viral that like Google, it, Canon probably will apply a manual penalty, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's the law of shitty click-throughs and then like channel fatigue. Maybe this is like tactic fatigue. Similar to like when pop-ups were a thing at first, they were converting at like 70% or something. And then now they convert at like half a percent. Now everyone knows this thing, how to do this thing. Google knows so it can figure out a way to maybe flag it, but everyone's going to be trying to do this. Maybe not mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to. We talk about too much in the marketing space. It's like if you, if you did a tactic that worked and you didn't write a Twitter thread or create a course about it, did it really work? Did it work? <laughs> <laughs> no. It needs to go viral or it doesn't count. I kind of like that we moved away. I think we had our pillar pieces for our business philosophy and brand point of view. I think there's still a couple things that we can talk about, like 
we're starting to form this idea of like the content portfolio, which is a playoff, like the barbell strategy and all that. But I kind of like that we don't just give away. I mean, I don't think there's secrets. It's more just like how we think about things and how we do things. And a lot of our strengths are operational, but we're not trying to just share all. We don't have to, kind of, we don't have time to share. It takes all of it. time. <laughs> yeah. We're too busy doing the work, not talking about it. <laughs> so there's kind of some irony there, I guess. I've been thinking, not a lot, but I've been paying more attention to these LinkedIn influencers. And Alex, you had mentioned something about like someone hired one of those LinkedIn experts and I realized they were full of shit or they weren't, they didn't actually know how to do anything and they just fired him. Yeah. And I'm just one of the AI ones. It just makes me wonder how many of those people that are on LinkedIn. And there are a few where I've seen them like, I actually know that your stuff isn't good. Mm. Like your work's not good. You're just good at packaging it up and writing good copy. Well, it's funny you say that because one thing that I put on our notes was uh, exiting the matrix because I inversely have not been paying attention to LinkedIn influencers. And I found that my uh, original ideas have come back in quite an interesting way. Like I feel like I'm thinking for myself and I'm kind of thinking through this term. Do you know Cal Newport? Mm-hmm. So he he wrote Deep Work and he uh, I think his website's even called The Deep Life. So this is his whole um, mental model for living kind of a slower pace. Like it's like not getting bogged down in like uh, distractions and emails and meetings and like living just like it's almost like the equivalent of slow travel. It's really taking it in. Um, I've been thinking about the long form life and how I used to like my brain a lot better. Um, So I I was um, I went down kind of a weird rabbit hole like last weekend and I read It's Guggenhoff by uh, H.A. Cohn, which was a, an amazing essay on uh, Google search results in 2023. And that brought me down like, a crazy rabbit hole of a bunch of different content. And in the article, he talks a lot about uh, kind of the spammy tactics that Forbes has done. And he linked out to some articles on Forbes. And it was like, it, it reminded me of an article that I had written in 2018 called There's No Such Thing as Free Lunch in Content. And uh, I wrote about the contributor model and how the incentives were misaligned. And I read the article. I sent the article to somebody and they were like, this is amazing. And I was, I was reading it. I'm like, my, my writing in that article was very good, you know, and I, I haven't written an article like that in a long time. And I was like, I want to go back to that. And I don't even care how many people read it. Like it's, it's, it's less important to me to go viral nowadays in the short form format. I'd rather have like 20 people read an article that I wrote and really put my heart into it. And it was good as opposed to like trying to write pithy LinkedIn posts and tweets every day. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking through this idea of the long form life. I like that podcasts, I think is a great format too. You're not trying to build sound bites. We can cut up clips and stuff, but it's really a long conversation that we're having with our guests or with, with each other. Newsletters, they're another place where you can just kind of be weird and write in any format that you want. You can really explore ideas. I just think like these formats on social and the algorithms that uh, incentivize this, this very kind of like flashy, hooky type content is degrading all of our collective thinking. Yeah, I've always struggled to I think you guys know this, to really find my stride on LinkedIn. I tend to, when I spend time on there, leave more like watered or bogged down than I do feeling like empowered or inspired. And there's a collective, like few folks that I'll read their stuff. And I'm always like, this is really good. Like, I know they put the time into this, the effort into this, I respect their opinion or their findings, or their results. But for the most part, it's just noise to me because it's all about velocity right it's all about like quantity now in order to go viral 
But the less time I spend on LinkedIn, the more, like you said, Alex, I feel more in touch with like my thoughts, like my gut intuition, which can always be improved, right? But there needs to be a balance of like alone time and introspection and then like collecting outside thoughts, opinions, and learnings. I think the key is like finding that balance because everyone's balance is their own. Some people thrive off spending time on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people. I know people make it work. Like I, I have friends who generate a lot of leads from there, but my other contention is like, sometimes it just feels like it's it's Chris Walker and like 10 other companies just kind of posting the same shit over and over again. <laughs> and I'm like, are, are we, who are we not reaching? Like who is actually not on LinkedIn? Because I was, I was actually looking up like an old high school buddy the other day and I, I, was wondering what he was up to. And he's got a Facebook and, you know, I could kind of see like, he's a decently successful dude. And uh, I tried to find him on LinkedIn and he just doesn't have a LinkedIn profile. So I was, I was thinking like, you don't need to be posting on LinkedIn, but like literally a lot of people don't even have a LinkedIn profile. So it's not like, it's not like a fucking <laughs> mandatory place that everybody has to be, you know? Yeah. There's a whole world that exists out there that isn't on social media. Totally. And like, we've seen that with our recent kind of larger clients. It's like, None of them had found us via like social posting. Yeah, I've been starting to notice myself moving toward wanting to do more long form as well. And I think it was from reading like the Google Enough article and which led me to reading Maggie Appleton's website about the Mm -hmm. AI dark forest. Mm -hmm. And I was like, first of all, this website is very well done. Like I love the design and the font because that's the shit that I just pay attention to. But she has a collection of here's my short form thoughts and here are my essays. I'm like, man, I do have a lot of thoughts. I just don't make the time to, to write them out or like reflect on them and figure out what exactly I'm try- I want to communicate. And I miss doing that. And I'm probably going to do that over the holidays of like, all right, we've gone through a lot building the business and working with all these clients. Time to reflect and figure out what these thoughts are. And those might turn into posts for my personal site or for the omniscient site. But I like that trend towards that better because I'm, I'm tired of the short form stuff where I read a LinkedIn post and I'm like, I see why this got a lot of likes and impressions, misses a lot of nuance. And I'm tired of, I'm tired of people ignoring nuance. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy how much like your thinking changes when you surround yourself with short form, like inputs, like taking the time to write an essay requires like long form thinking and like sitting with a thought and letting it formulate and reflecting on it. And even when you hit a wall, having the discipline to push through, continue to explore that thought or take a break and come back to it versus like 270 characters, 270 characters. This is all I need to deliver today because your thoughts start to become shortened and like less inspired if that's all you're producing too. It's the same way with consumption too. Like yeah. reading that, it's Google enough article. And I, I went down the same rabbit hole and read all of the different links as well. And I felt like nourished in a way that I hadn't reading sort of LinkedIn takes and Twitter. I still end up on Twitter from time to time if I'm just like procrastinating. And I find that my brain enters sort of a hyper stimulated state where I kind of feel stressed, but also excited. <laughs> but I'm not really reading, like I'm not really like remembering anything that I read. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this case, like I felt like I had learned something. I felt like I had, there was sort of a, a, an emergent property of like, I had my own thoughts from reading it that made me want to write about certain aspects again. And it felt like the difference between say, like just going getting like a sandwich at the bodega or like a fast food meal versus like maybe cooking and nourishing like, you know, vegetables. Yeah. 
I think it'd be cool to talk about the dark forest theory of the internet. Yes. What is it? The dark forest theory, um, it wasn't Maggie Appleton that coined it. I can't remember who had coined it, and I will just post the link. But uh, I'll just read from Maggie Appleton's essay, which is more applied to the generative AI impact on the dark forest. So the dark forest theory of the web points to the increasingly lifelike but lifeless state of being online. Most open and publicly available spaces in the web are overrun with bots, advertisers, trolls, data scrapers, clickbait, keyword stuffing content creators, and algorithmically manipulated junk. It's like a dark forest that seems eerily devoid of life. All of the living creatures are hidden beneath the ground or up in the trees. If they reveal themselves, they risk being attacked by automated predators. So humans who want to engage in informal, unoptimized, and personal interactions have to hide in closed spaces like invite-only Slack channels, Discord groups, email newsletters, small-scale blogs, and digital gardens, or make themselves illegible and algorithmically incoherent in, in public venues. So that's sort of the concept. I think we're pretty much talking about that with LinkedIn. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I guess like I'll, I'll frame the article too. So the, her, her concept here is that like this is about to get worse because of large language models. So we can instantly generate tons and tons of human-like text. And she, in her essay, I thought had a really interesting angle on the Turing test, which is robots kind of proving that they're human or, or passing the, the test that we believe that they are human. And she's like, maybe the more important test is, is like, how do you signal you're a human if you are a human in this world? Yeah. And I thought that was a more interesting question to ask. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I read the book, The Dark Forest, which is sci-fi and like the whole, like the original hypothesis is we have not found alien civilizations because they don't want to be detected because they don't know if we're hostile. So by that nature, we should also not want to be detected by alien civilizations because we don't know if they're hostile. And in this case, it's like, if there's all these people creating content with AI, it's like, who's actually a human? Who is real on this thing we call the internet now? And I kind of, I remember I joked about this when the pandemics ended and I was like, yeah, everyone wants to meet in person, go to conferences, go get dinners, like group dinners, even if it's with strangers. And I joked with Cash on the podcast and I'm like, yeah, soon enough, like people are just going to do door-to-door sales. And he was actually like, actually, someone just knocked on my door yesterday mm -hmm. selling me software. <laughs> and I was like, wait, so, like software, like they probably could just call the email to you, but they were at your door. He's like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they had like knew my zip code and saw a bunch of prospects in my area and knocked on my door. And he like had a whole conversation with them. So my high level thought is just like, yep, I don't have an answer, but it just makes me even more believe that people might just trust the internet less or what they see on the internet and focus more on like who they know is a real person. But then that doesn't answer your question of how do you signal that you're a real person? No, but this is good framing for it. I, I talked to Chris Toy from Marketer Hire on the podcast a while back, and we talked about AI and more from like the, you know, what, what innovative solutions we can come up with using AI. And of course, he's a marketer. So we talked about sales development, mass emails, uh, mass content creation, and I pose the question around second order effects and third order effects of that, which is like, sure, like if we can all create this, like we will, and there's going to be probably an arbitrage opportunity. The second order effect, though, is that everybody starts to copy and start doing the same thing. And the third order effect is that people start ignoring it. So the tactic diminishes in effectiveness. So then you got to do something else to stand out. And it's almost like, in that case, like maybe being flawed and imperfect in your email communications would signal that you're human or, you know, like maybe, maybe there's almost like reverse, um, uh, uh, signaling because like I certainly al already at this point, I tend to ignore outreach or 
comments on LinkedIn, for God's sake. Like, you see them all the time. It's like the most fucking obvious thing in the world that it was AI generated. And I just disregard you entirely as a person. <laughs> like, if I see anything yeah. that's AI generated. And it's like, it could be a very helpful and enlightening comment. But if I know it's AI written, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine folks like us who work in digital primarily are more sensitive or at least like have the default assumption that something is AI generated because it's so prevalent in our day to day. I would imagine like the average consumer who works, maybe they're a nurse or a teacher, they aren't as primed for that and they don't have the same sort of scrutiny yet or the same sort of distrust for the internet, which is almost scarier depending on how they're being marketed to or reached out to. But yeah, Alex, I mean, if I receive like a picture perfect email, even if my name is like in the right spot, you know how they're like, hello, recipient. I would, I almost look for like misspellings or like emojis Mm -hmm. or a joke or something. Not that I reply to most outreach, but if it's too clean, I'm like, nah, this isn't anything. We're going way back, uh, but do you, do you remember those um, like Nigerian prince emails where they wanted to, <laughs> you know, like wire you money or, or whatever like the the scam was? Wait, what's the scam? <laughs> you never heard of that? Yeah, it's like a, it was a classic during the <laughs> no. Hotmail days. But anyway, it was a scam email. That's all you need to know. And apparently, I don't know where I heard this, but apparently they would make it pretty like shoddy and filled with typos because that would filter the people who were gullible enough to go through with it. Because like any normal person would be like, this is clearly a scam. So it was, like it was a, a totally opposite filtering mechanism. But maybe now we've come full circle and that's like actually how you would prove that somebody is legit. But Ali, to your point, um, you know, maybe we're sophisticated in seeing AI, sure. But like, did you see the recent Sports Illustrated controversy? Yeah. So basically, yeah, Sports Illustrated had spun up a bunch of AI content and built like fake personas and writers. And once it came out, like the comment section was very interesting because people were mad. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that not everybody in that comment section is working as an SEO or a marketer. Right. So it was almost like the takeaway for me there is like it doesn't even matter if the content was good or they enjoyed reading it during the time. The fact that it was AI generated was the piece that they were upset about, that, that it wasn't a human delivering it. So, yeah, I think the sentiment is still pretty bad on this stuff. It's interesting because I wonder if if they didn't know that, would they have cared Probably not. But then I think there's something to be said around writing can be so powerful that when you enjoy it, you want to know who wrote it. Yeah. And I was on like Google News on on my phone before bed because that's what I do. And then there was this article about this AI model is making tens of thousands of euros on Instagram. Everyone knows it's an AI model, but she or it has hundreds of thousands of followers. and the agency that created this AI model is like, yeah, we got tired of working with influencers with ego. So we just created an AI model. And then when you look at the the Instagram profile and look at the comments, like people are commenting on it, like it's a real person. So in this case, I mean, I don't, the, the tie back I'm trying to make, I guess, is like it's AI, but people know it's AI and they're still commenting and like getting a, attached to it. But when it yes. comes to writing, they're having a much more visceral reaction. I think it's all about the expectation that's being set, right? Like I can't fault somebody for using ChatGPT to spin up a mass email to try to sell me 
software. Is it annoying? Yeah. Will it work? Probably not. But like, we're all looking for ways to make things more efficient. Now, if I'm subscribing to a paid newspaper online, or if I'm subscribing to a blog or a Substack or something where I'm like, this person, I appreciate their opinion. I want to get to know them and their individual, sophisticated, original critical thoughts, which is one of the reverse Turing test points in her essay. And they use AI to create content to whatever depth that they do, I will be annoyed by that. I will unsubscribe likely because that's not what I'm paying for necessarily. But there is like a third part of all this. I know Facebook rolled out those AI like personality people, like all like Kendall Jenner and Tom Brady and all of them, these like AI bots that you talk to, they -hmm. like purchase their likeness for like one to two years. Um, there's a ton of like AI girlfriends, <laughs> girlfriends and boyfriends that people will like date. And I do think like, I had a discussion with Kaylee and Krista about this. Like there are people due to illness or mental health or like physical location that can't interact with the world the same way that most people can. So I do think that there is a, in my opinion, small benefit to having that outlet, but I think it's really going to fuck up our generation and the folks like younger than us and how they interact with the world and how they gather information and socialize, especially with the folks that know it's AI and want it to be AI and pay for that. That to me is like super scary. Yeah. Well, the, the, benefits i think are far outweighed by the cost and that like if something's more convenient and maybe one to two percent of people who wouldn't have done so otherwise and would have gone out to dinner with their real friends start to do the more convenient option that's more detrimental than maybe the couple people who can't do that in the first place in my opinion if we're just looking at like the utilitarian argument but i'm glad you brought up kaylee because she talks about parasocial relationships and i'm not a fan of that at all like i think it's it's weird that we like think we're friends with Andrew Huberman and we like look up to people that we've never met and any sort of like celebrity idolization and like, you know, parasocialism is, I don't think the healthiest thing, but we're entering this new level where it's like, it's not even a real person. It's like, you know, you get get crude here, but you could sign up for an OnlyFans and it could be an AI generated fucking person. No, there, there are. That's why I was saying is like, there are literal like women women, I'm using quotations, on Instagram that young girls, I mean, even people my age, I'm almost 30, are like comparing themselves to and going to their doctors and their plastic surgeons and being like, I want to look like this. And these are fucking fake things. They're not even people. And it angers me because I don't know, you can't do anything about it. But it's just like, I feel like our world is getting so small and people's like, like information gathering and how they learn about things and how they learn about people and worlds that are different than them it's just ceasing to exist because let's say I talk to this Tom Brady, AI, Facebook, whatever the fuck it is, meta person for two years. And that's where I have most of my conversation. First of all, I'm literally talking to a robot. Like there's literally no new information Two, meta isn't like gathering everything that I am talking to this Mm -hmm. robot about. So not only are they gathering more data that I don't even want to know what they're doing with, but my world has dwindled to like an inch. I'm not like interacting with anybody or anything that's different than me. And how do you feel after doing so? Like, that's the question too, back to like the long form versus short form thing. It's like, how do you feel after you, it it sucks sometimes, like it's cold in New York City and I'm not always feeling social, even though I'm more extroverted. You know, sometimes I don't want to go to a dinner. 
But I put my coat on and I go outside and I go to the dinner. And usually afterwards, I feel a lot better. Same thing if I like make myself go to the gym, you know, that feeling versus like staying in and engaging with the robot. Like, how do you feel afterwards? That's the question you have to be honest with yourself with. And like, to me, it's so obvious, you know, I don't think people deal with those emotions very well. And I don't think that they're forced to. I remember that Black Mirror episode, David, you mentioned Black Mirror, where I think someone lost her husband and they created like a AI bot of the Mm -hmm. husband and she just carried on with her life, never had to deal with grief, loss, emptiness, sadness, and eventually it all blew up. And this is that, but on micro levels across like many, many different people and many different emotions. Mm Mm-hmm. That's scary. I mean, there's going to be a backlash, no? Like, there's at least going to be a contingency of people who don't buy into this. Obviously, like, we're... (laughs) It sounds like we're those people, and I'm sure there's more people like that. When I go to conferences, most of the sentiment is the same. So I don't think it's, like, a given that this is going to be, like, the cultural, you know, standard. I think the adoption is probably going to be slower than we think. I mean, maybe we pay more attention to it than average person, and Maybe the average person is relatively skeptical and not as likely to adopt. The part that I think about is the people in business, like large scale business with a lot of reach, like Sports Illustrated using these things and how that might cause the backlash. Mm -hmm. We have these clients that are asking for help producing AI content for the business benefits of scaling and it's cheap and all that. And I have to frequently remind them how these tools work and how it's like, you're just going to produce a lot of generic content and like, it's going to, maybe it'll work in a short term. And they're sort of like, we're fine with that. Like if it doesn't work in the long term, at least it works in a short term. I'm just like, oh, that's, I get it. Like you want to, you want, you want to take advantage of the arbitrage. The part that I'm concerned about is like, you write this content, it's under someone's byline and people are going to argue or disagree. And the person whose byline it is, is going to be like, I didn't write that. Or they create a fake persona and we see what happened with Sports Illustrated. And when we go back to our philosophy of, hey, you need to have some point of view on your industry that needs to be infused and like have some actual firsthand experience, it completely dilutes that whole aspect of the double eat approach to content production. So, I mean, how do we respond to that? And how should people think about <laughs> the balance of these tools enabling that scale, but also these second order consequences? One, I think it's totally fine to do short-term tactics if that's in your like experimental framework. Two, it doesn't need to be generic content. Uh, It's all about the underlying data that it's trained on and the fine-tuning. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be generic, but most cases it is. And three, I think it depends on the type of content you're producing. So if you're producing a glossary, actually, to me, like I I don't care if I have an AI-generated answer because I'm just looking for something quick. And if you can maybe spruce it up with a a little bit of editorializing, like to me, that's totally fine. So case dependent for me. Yeah, or listicles. I know that we've produced like comparison listicles or like software breakdowns where AI models were able to gather like all kinds of data points that would have taken a lot of manual review of a lot of different review sites. Obviously, you have to go back and kind of spot check to make sure that the data points are accurate. Uh, But that's in terms of types of content. Alex, that's another one I've seen a decent use case for. And I think even with like thought leadership or whatever phrase you want to use there that really incorporates or plays off of brand POV, there's going to be introductions and conclusions and meta descriptions and titles and things you can use AI to speed up the production of. 
I still don't, I, I still haven't figured out how to ideate or produce that stuff at scale using those thought leadership inputs or the brand POV inputs. I know that's something we're experimenting with right now with the client. Side note, what if we all as an industry agree and we do a little handshake with Google to just stop writing introductions and conclusions and just write the point of the article? Well, there, there's always going to be an introduction. <laughs> Does there have to be? No, it's got to be an introduction, three paragraphs and a conclusion, Alex. Don't you know this? <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. Haven't you been struggling with this? This article will cover this. Yeah, fuck Let's that. get started. I, <laughs> um, I just want the answer. Like, uh, I, I kind of like this new trend. I think Gaetano has talked about it where it's like, just give it right up front. Yeah. Uh, first line in front or there's some edit editing model like that. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yes. You, <laughs> so I don't know what it is. <laughs> there's an editing model. It's like an acronym. There was like first line. I think it's like in front or uh, I don't know what it is. That sounds real. Or most important line. It's basically like putting the most important shit up front. Like you don't like, yeah. you know. I actually really appreciate that too. When I'm reading stuff and I'm like, I scroll to the bottom, like this is really long, but at the top they have a summary of like main takeaways. I forget what website actually does that, but I'm like, oh, I like this. And it seems like it's going to cover what I want to read about. So like, I'll actually read this. So ironically, the summary gets me to read it. When I started uh, at CXL back in 2015, I would do the typical introductions when I would write articles and Pep would edit them and he would just chop it all out. So <laughs> I would basically like, they would turn into a one sentence introduction, which is the way it should be, right? Mm. It's it's like... So he didn't, he didn't edit, he just highlighted and then pressed delete (laughs) (laughs) suggestion (laughs) it's like this is useless nobody gives a fuck about this like it's like are you ready to learn about a b (laughs) testing like most people are wrong and like they're it's like just this is an article about a b testing and then you go into the a b testing yeah a b testing is one of the most powerful ways to generate more conversions (laughs) from in fact 97 percent of businesses say that a b testing is important and will be more so in the year 20 (laughs) bard is that you (laughs) In this ever-changing digital landscape. <laughs> oh my God. We need to continue no. evolving to stay relevant and continue growing the business. I'm triggered. <laughs> I'm triggered. <laughs> but speaking of an evolving landscape, do we want to talk about marketing predictions? <laughs> 10 out of 10 for that segue. Uh, mm. uh, well, yeah, marketing predictions. I, so I, oh, I like these predictions, but I, I hate predictions. I, I hate the idea of predictions because it's asymmetrical in value in that if you are wrong, no one ever comes back to correct you. You never have to say, I apologize. And people take your advice and they run with it. A lot of big companies and thought leaders will put them out. The predictions are always backed up by, well, it's what they're selling usually a vendor or a thought leader mm. who has a consulting business, right? So mm. we could easily sit back and say, I think that organic growth is going to increase in value. And I think SEO is more important than ever. <laughs> like, we could give all the arguments for those. But yeah, predictions are bullshit. No one knows what's going to happen. Maybe we'll have another global pandemic next year. Who the fuck knows? The predictions here I thought were good because they were curmudgeonly, which I love. <laughs> okay, so Clark Barron did these, founder and CEO of Demand Gen Therapy. And Oh, he said it too. He's like, marketing predictions are meaningless content fodder. Anyway, here's my four predictions. <laughs> Let's roll. <laughs> so the first one, roaming bands of go-to-market mercenaries are going to dumpster most agencies. Um, you've probably seen a few of these take shape over LinkedIn. Yeah, he's saying a lot of go-to-market, like individualized, like SEAL teams of go-to-market consultants are going to beat out agencies. 
That's probably true. That's one of our big threats. I think for us, we kind of can be like a SEAL team. He's using like SEAL team. So I'm using it. SEAL team for organic growth programs. Yeah. Yeah. Bring us in, build it from scratch. Stay lean, move fast. We're, we're very, we're specialized too. Yeah. I, I think like, especially for the large multi-service digital marketing firms who do a little of everything. I never understood that anyway, I, until I talked to enterprises who want one throat to choke, so to speak. But um, yeah, I, nowadays, like there's more part-time fractional, if you want to be fancy, marketing hires who used to be VPs and whatever at big companies. I do think they're largely like a lot of them are bullshit, though. And I've heard this firsthand and I can't say names, but like a lot of people who were like, large company the fractional yeah no because a lot of them are they were executives at large companies and have no fucking idea how to do the work for startups so they'll charge 10k a month and i I have literally specific examples of people we all know who are complete fluff and i think there is going to be a little bit of churn and burn going on uh, as this becomes more common i need to hear names later (laughs) yeah for sure but um yeah just because you were like a vp at google doesn't mean that you know how to like allocate resources and grow and experiment a series B startup. And those are the companies who are typically looking to place fractional part-time SEAL teams of go-to-market professionals, right? It's not SAP who's looking to do that. So I don't know. I'm kind of mixed on that one. I, I like the trend though, because it means that companies can hire really good talent if they find the right people. Like they can hire really good talent without paying the full-time salary because most of them don't need that at their stage anyway. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes it harder for not as smart people to hold on to, like not as hardworking or smart people to work, hold on to their jobs. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I've been in positions where I'm like, like natural selection. Yeah. I'm sort of like, what do you even do? And like the stuff you're doing isn't even working. Like, why are you still here? So if you bring on someone who has done it before and they're like, hey, your team's not performing, that actually helps level up the bar, at least like from the business sense. It sucks, sucks for the employee who was kind of hiding. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck them. Well, I mean, and com- what he's saying about dumpstering most agencies, like, I'm okay with that too, <laughs> because I think it makes us do better work. And how much can individuals do? Why are you laughing? <laughs> that was just so aggressive for Mel. <laughs> for me? No, for no, me. For Alex. <laughs> oh, fuck. I was like, who gives a shit about the employees hiding? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> you're laughing because you agree <laughs> yeah. yeah you said it I, i'm just surprised you said it. can i go thinking. now <laughs> Ali, sorry i was gonna say i'm not even upset about the prospect of them nixing the agencies either for the same idea of like these agencies that sell these prepackaged services that don't pivot or bend for anything and they're not even good at their jobs it's these big teams of consultants that do nothing fuck them too, right? Like not mm-hmm. only does it hold us to a higher standard, it makes us grow and bend, which we are. And we can deliver more than these individual mercenaries can anyway. So I think we're the best of both. Yeah, if, if you're truly an Ayn Randian capitalist, if you truly believe in the Adam Smith <laughs> mechanisms of capitalism, then you are against freeloaders, yep. right? If you're not providing value to the world, then no no value accrues to you. That's how capitalism works. You create value. It's net positive. It's not stealing from the same finite pie. And if you're not creating value, you shouldn't create value. So I totally agree. Everybody deserves success. Everyone deserves a trophy. 
just I'm for just playing. If, I, I'm not. I'm not saying this is my argument. I'm just saying if you were a true believer in Adam Smith, <laughs> I don't agree with that. I, I I wouldn't say I'm a true believer, like cold-hearted capitalist. But as we built this, is more like the kitchen side of things on like my views on business. But as we built this business, everywhere I look, I'm like, oh wow, a business created that. I'll be on a plane. I'll be like, a business created these seats and created these pamphlets and these windows and the tires on his plane and like on my desk, like multiple businesses created all the shit I have on my desk. And I just think it's such a beautiful, intricate system of people creating decorations or like equipment for others to use. And yeah, you have Mm -hmm. to pay for it, but hopefully you are also creating something of value for like those in your life through your business or services or employment. And I think it's just a beautiful system where you can hate on it all you want, but it it somehow works very well. Like we all have a role to play in like, Hey, how do we make the lives of the people around us better? Like whether it's a faceless entity, like another business, or whether it's like the clients that we work with face-to-face who work for these faceless entities, but like we make their lives easier through our agency. And maybe not everyone can relate to that, but I find that whole system beautiful, like, cause it's all self-enforcing and everyone's figuring out how to provide value in some way theoretically. And so if there's a freeloader sitting there not doing anything, getting paid and not providing value, that morally doesn't sit right with me because a lot of people are working hard to provide that sort of value. I'm totally going to cut that into a clip and uh, put that uh, that song on. Proud to be an American. With <laughs> <laughs> like a, the flag behind flag me. Behind me. <laughs> Dude, I that was so beautiful. I love that. Bald eagle flies in the background. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, the second point. I actually I forgot about these takes, but yeah. So founders slash CEOs will find out the hard way that anybody can call themselves a fractional CMO. Are there great ones? Sure. But when enough directors slash VPs call themselves fractional CMOs and then saturate the market with the same playbook they've used everywhere they've been, it's going to be a weird time in marketing land. So I think we just talked about that. That's totally true. Um, Yeah, nobody knows you're a dog on the internet. It's really concerning. (laughs) It's like, I mean, it's these LinkedIn influencers who can just post whatever and for some reason have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. And then we get asked about it and it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like <laughs> there was a LinkedIn person who shared, posted something about one of our clients, about something that they think the client should be doing. Client sends it to me. That person on LinkedIn posted and tagged this company about what they think that company should be doing for the SEO and content. The VP of marketing sends me it and they're like, hey, it'd be great if you can surface this before like I find out about it on LinkedIn. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? this isn't even an issue. <laughs> um, and so I'm like some random person on LinkedIn posted about this thing that maybe caused some concern if you aren't super aware about it. And then someone like us who has access to like the data and everything, we're like, wait, this isn't actually a thing. We don't, you don't need to worry about this. And so it kind of creates this skewed idea where like people trust these random people on LinkedIn because of these signals that they're trustworthy when they probably shouldn't be trusted. So that makes me concerned to all the other people leading teams and like not entirely sure who to trust and seeing these things and being like, might cause some thrashing for them, right? Like might cause some unneeded anxiety. I think everyone goes through it though. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. Everyone's got to gotta figure out who to trust on the internet. 
you got to make some mistakes and trust the wrong people, invest with the wrong people. Yeah. I mean, fortunately that, I mean, fortunately for that person, they had me to tell them not to worry about it. If I didn't tell them not worry about it and show them the diagnostics, they might've spent days or hours trying to dig into this, like spending, getting the engineering time to go try to figure it out, which would not have been a good use of time. So there are like some negative consequences there. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Third point, exploring AI will be realized as a complete waste of time for a lot of marketing teams due to existing broken processes. And I want to follow up because the next two sentences are awesome. Stop and really think for a second. You know that lead gen versus demand gen is still a conversation, right? People still think that's a debate. (laughs) I love that. Um, I completely agree with this one. And also, um, our guy, Chad Sanderson, talks a lot about this with regards to data and the infrastructure that exists. And he's basically like, you think you're going to run mass scale generative AI and your data is broken? Like, it's like if your underlying frameworks, your underlying data, your underlying processes are broken, AI is not going to do shit. Yeah. I think I've seen that just generally too, in not just AI, but like, Anytime there's a new technology or like a new trend, people rush to solutionize. It's like the religion of solutionism. They're like, how can I fit this in? Like, doesn't matter what the problem is. Like, I'm looking, I'm, I have a hammer, I'm looking for a nail. Like that type of thing. I'm guilty of that. And I need to like step the fuck back. <laughs> I think there's always, always ways to improve, but it's like growth and efficiency for the sake of growth and efficiency. There's a ceiling somewhere. Like businesses that try to eke out every extra second, every extra cent, like I think that's part of the approach here. I'm sure there's CMOs and CEOs all over the world. What do you all do with AI? How are you guys implementing AI? How are we becoming more efficient with AI? And it's just like continuing to layer all this like nonsense on top of broken systems, no data. They don't even know what working well means to begin with or like what efficiency looks like to begin with. So, all right, brand brand deals with B2B influencers are going to be problematic and there are marketers already exploiting a key vulnerability. What the hell am I talking about? I'll put it this way. LinkedIn is sliding down the learning curve. Like this language is so funny. LinkedIn is sliding down the learning curve like the banana splits when it comes to regulating disclosure on paid brand deals. There's going to be an issue on transparency that's going to breed a lot of shady shit for a while. Uh, So I think he's saying that there's going to be a lot of... B2B influencers? Yeah. So it's like when people pay Dave Gerhardt to like post on LinkedIn about their hockey stack software. Mm, But it's not like Mark does a paid advertisement. I don't know. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Oh, interesting. But you can see these obviously pop up. Like I've seen them from time to time. Sometimes they say this is an ad and sometimes they don't. It's obvious in both cases. I like when people say this isn't an ad. I just love it so much. I'm like, I believe you. I don't believe anything else. Oh, now everyone's going to say it's not an ad when it is. Actually, that's like fraud. <laughs> that's illegal. What is that phrase? The lady lady doth protest too, not, too much. Yeah. It's, it's the Shakespeare thing. The lady doth protest too much. It's like when you say, when you're like overly like defensive about something, it's like probably true, the thing you're defending. <laughs> it's like, I swear to God, this isn't an ad. I just love it. And it's like, Really? <laughs> why, why are you so defensive about it being an ad? <laughs> is there, maybe like to close this out, is there a tool that y'all have been using recently where you're like, I fucking love this tool? Hmm. I think the standards, like I, I've really, I think SEMrush has really been improving in my experience. Surfer's dope. I just use ChatGPT for a bunch of stuff. Hmm. Google Sheets. 
I I don't know. I like spreadsheets. <laughs> I've legitimately started to just like um like paper and pen my ideas out more. Like that's been my whole long form life thing. Like just being more of a luddite. I'm like actually like all of the tools. Like yeah, they can make me more effective and f- efficient. But like what what was missing was the ideas in the first place. And that's what I personally am going to spend more time on at the end of the year and next year. Yeah, I used to have this approach to like if I wanted to like okay so every year I always want to go running I always want to start running become a runner and so I buy a bunch of shit but I had like that's not going to magically make me start running and I sometimes I have to just prove to myself I have to do the thing with imperfect equipment and then I'll invest in whatever I need to make it better and I think a lot of people do that with tooling they purchase things or subscribe to things thinking it's going to magically build the habit or make the system but there's a lot of DIY stuff like pen and paper, spreadsheets, checklists, stuff like that, that you could, you know, do the bare bones of whatever it is and then invest in the tool. Just a little thought. What about you, David? I've been using ChatGPT a lot more. I mean, I use Koala, which is good for like ABM stuff, but that's not like a daily thing. I've also started using MidJourney a lot more. So I'm kind of late to the game, but I'm just like, damn, these are good. <laughs> I just, I gave it a prompt of like a picture of a white pit bull in the snow with a Santa hat on. And it gave me a picture that looked just like Chance, my dog. And Aww. I was like, this is perfect. And I sent it to Lisa. She was like, can we just make holiday cards with this? <laughs> you know, you can upload uh, images to to use yeah. as part of the prompt, right? You could upload a picture of Chance. Yeah. I wanted to see what it would do without a, a picture uploaded because yeah. I don't want anyone to just take Chance's image data and put it everywhere on the internet, you know? This data oh, privacy yeah. is very important. To yeah. chance, yeah, of course. <laughs> 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 oh my god. Cool.